Father God, I thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together as believers. We thank you for the new campus that you have entrusted to us in Merrill. We pray that many in that part of our community would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. We pray that for Weston and Marathon and Wausau as well. Father, we ask that as we study 1 Corinthians, that your inspired and errant word would penetrate our hearts and challenge us and encourage us, that we would be better equipped because we have studied your word. Allow your spirit to guide my words and each of our hearts, that we would be transformed by truth, your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, a group of 14 fathers and sons went to Greece on a shoestring budget. And while we were there, we saw a number of biblical and non-biblical sites. I remember one place we were at was the Olympic Stadium in Athens, built for the first modern Olympics in 1896. We all decided, you can see that it looks like the big lap, we all decided, hey, we are going to take a lap. And so we broke off into little groups, and we ran, and as I ran, it was almost like I could hear chariots of fire in the background. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's what it felt like. And in my particular heat, uh, I think it was Dave Mahler and me, and I beat him by a little fraction. That's my memory, and I got the mic this morning. He might tell you a different story. But we all took one lap around, and then they had this little stand where you could stand for the gold and the silver and the bronze to have your picture taken. And I have no idea who I actually ran against, but I stood on the gold, and I got a picture of it. Another place we went on that particular trip was Meteora, which is a series of monasteries and nunneries. It's in the west and north of Greece, and uh, you go there and all of these juts of rock come out of the ground, sometimes 60, sometimes 80, sometimes 100 feet, and on the top of that, they built monasteries and nunneries. The one that uh, they put up a PowerPoint a moment ago is called Holy Trinity. It was built in 1362. And while we were there, uh, my pastor brother-in-law, don't miss the word pastor, Greg said, uh, hey, you want to go see what's inside the nunnery? I said, I thought that was off limits. He said, oh, no, I know how to get in. Now, you got to understand that Greg is a rule keeper, so when he says... I know how to get in. I'm thinking he has permission to get in. Those are not the same things. <laughs> and what was even more startling is there was this group of Asians that we had never met before who saw that Greg was leading a tour. And so they followed. I followed Greg. They followed me. And inside the nunnery we went. And things were going well. And it had not been decorated since like 1362. And so we were inside this 14th century compound. It was, it was incredible. 
And I'm looking around and we go further and further in until we find ourselves in the, the bedroom chambers and there is an 80-year-old nun who is very nimble and she's wielding a cane and she's swinging it at us. And I don't think uh, she is offering to bless us. Last rites were more like it. And we hightailed it out, and I can still remember this group of Asians looking at us like, what did you get us into? Because they're probably rule keepers, and I'm a rule keeper, and my brother-in-law clearly is a rule breaker. And so I got to see this incredible 14th century nunnery from inside. Another place we went to was ancient Corinth. Ancient Corinth is exactly what we're going to look at in the coming months. And in ancient Corinth, we had communion at the Bema seat, the Bema judgment. It's really a wall. Uh, that really is the Bema. And that's where a judge would preside over a court case. And if you were found guilty, that's a whipping stone. You were tied to it so you could not escape. Very possibly a stone that the Apostle Paul was tied to. Also in ancient Corinth was the temple to Apollos. This was built, this is all that's standing, but this was built in 660 B.C. That's 2,600 years old. And we were there to experience some of what Paul experienced when he went to ancient Corinth. Now understand that to date, we have unearthed temples to 26 different gods in ancient Corinth. 26. So you have Poseidon, you have Artemis, you have Venus called Epaphroditus, you have Mercury called Hermes, you have Zeus. 26 different false gods are worshipped in this place that Paul went on a second missionary journey to minister the gospel to people who did not have it. This is a very idolatrous nation. There's a papyrus, Oxyancris, that says, I pray to all the gods. That was the mentality. It was a cafeteria worship. You chose a little bit of this God and a little bit of that God and a little bit of that God and a little bit of that God. As I said, we have 26 different gods that we have unearthed temples to in this geographic region. Now, understand, because of this, Christ's followers were shunned. They were called misanthropos. Miss is against, anthropos, man, against man, literally means the hatred of man. Why were Christians called the haters of man? Because if you didn't worship all the gods, you might jilt a god, and that god would be angry with you, and then misfortune would come upon the city of ancient Corinth. And so what would happen is anytime there was a difficulty, a trial, a tribulation, the Christians would be blamed, they would be accused of having not worshipped certain gods and therefore the trouble on all the people came from the Christians. Misanthropos, haters of Christ or haters of man. That's what they were called. Now understand, 
Christ followers were just obeying the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments is, Thou shalt have no other God beside me, and thou shalt not worship any other God. Idolatry was rampant, and the Christ followers refused to worship false gods, and because of that, they were called mesanthropos, haters of mankind. But ancient Greece was not just a place of rampant idolatry. It was a place of rampant immorality. It was a sailor town with all the regular vices that might be expected in the first century. Ancient Corinth is on an isthmus between two bodies of water, and what would happen is ships would come into port, and they would unload the cargo, and then they had made tracks, almost like railroad tracks, and they would ship the cargo across the four miles, loaded on another ship, and in that way they could escape the Cape of Peloponnese, which was a 250-mile trip. They could cut their trip by 246 miles. In fact, so ingenious they were that these tracks were actually strong enough. Smaller ships were hoisted up. They were put on some kind of runner, and it was called dialkos, which means the dragging, and they would drag the ships across the four miles and put them in the other side. But during the transportation of cargo or during the transportation of ships, the sailors would party. They would have a good time, probably way too good a time, and there were all sorts of vices that arose out of the immorality that was rampant because of the sailor town. So much so that to Corinthianize became a euphemism of to commit immorality. A Corinthian girl was a euphemism throughout the whole Roman Empire as a prostitute. Can you imagine a, a city being named for a characteristic? Well, of course you can. Green Bay is called what? Title Town because of championships and Lombardi trophies. And I think Jared was very honest. Uh, He's going to be wearing some Packer gear. And, and I've got some Viking fans next week that I'm hoping are going to wear some Packer uh, paraphernalia as well. In fact, I have a little cartoon for you in honor of uh, the NFL. Great. More Viking tickets. Poor kid, right? Well, ancient Corinth and the Vikings both earned their reputation. And it's into this setting because God values people. And if God values people, we need to value people. It is into this setting that God sent Paul on his second of three missionary journeys, AD 52 to AD 53, to plant a church at Corinth and then to pastor that church for 18 months and then to write a series of, we know, four letters, two of which are inspired, inerrant, canonical letters, First and Second Corinthians. Paul sent them a number of letters to tell them about Jesus. And with this introduction, I want to pick up and let's read a little bit, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus and Christo. Then in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of the way I read the text, you got the theme of the text very clearly. In nine verses, ten times we are told about Jesus, being in Jesus, being in Jesus Christ, making Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives. What does a city that does not know the Lord need? More Jesus. What does central Wisconsin need? More Jesus. What do we need, whether we know Christ or we don't know Christ? What do we need? More Jesus. That's the theme of the text. That's really the theme of the book. The book is about a city nation that is not living for the Lord, a very corrupt church, a hot mess of a church that desperately, like us, needs more Jesus. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. That's what 2 Corinthians is about. It's the need in our lives for more Jesus. And so he begins in verse 2. It's a stunning statement. He says, you are sanctified, perfect passive. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Now, I don't think that's what I would have written but I'm not writing under the inspiration of God. I would have looked at the Corinthians and said, you guys are a hot mess. You guys are miserable as a church. Practically everything that could go wrong, every belief that you could miss, you've done. I wouldn't have called them sanctified, but the perfect passive participle tells me that it's something that occurred in their past that has implication for their present and is true in their future, and that is they have Jesus Christ. If there's anything that speaks to the assurance of salvation, it's that Paul would call these individuals sanctified in Christ Jesus. We'd say if you could lose your salvation, this bunch is going to lose it. But he uses something, the perfect tense, it happened in the past when they came to Christ. It has implications in the present. It has perfect implications in the future. It's passive. It's not something we do, but it's what God has done in us, through us. He has given us his son, and we believe in him. And because of that, we have eternity with God. The sanctification is because of the sanctifier, Jesus, who has done a work in their life. And if you know Jesus, he's done a work in your life as well. But you and I live in a meritocracy, right? 
A meritocracy is we think we have to merit everything. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We work our plan and plan our work. We're Americans. But when it comes to salvation, a meritocracy doesn't cut it. Jesus has done it all. We need to place our faith in the finished work of Christ. And having received Christ, then as Paul says in Philippians, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Because you and I can't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. The salvation that has been entrusted to us through faith in Jesus, then as an act of worship, we begin to work out, which is that process of becoming more and more like Christ, that process of sanctification. That's the process that Jesus talked about in the greatest commandment in Matthew 9, 37. Jesus said to him, that is the religious leader, he said, learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul. With all your might, I just gave you a different version of Matthew. This is the great and first commandment. We have to work out the salvation that God gave us. And the preeminent way is to truly love God. Holiness is loving God. Holiness is working out the salvation that God has given to us. But holiness is not legalism. And herein runs the problem. Many see holiness as a bunch of rules and regulations and stipulations. While the Bible gives us rules, regulations, and stipulations, and while out of an act of obedience we obey them, we aren't to add to them, but that's what legalists do. They're always adding more and more and more, and they become the, the police for the rest of us if we don't follow their extra-biblical rules, regulations, and the like. You know, God warns us against that kind of attitude. Now, the Corinthians didn't have that kind of attitude. They went the other way. They were lawless. They didn't want to obey even what God gave. But sometimes we go to the opposite extreme, and we obey what God gives, and then we add to it, and we become like the Pharisees who were legalists. I think of the really the last statement that has to do with our lives in all of Scripture, and it's against that form of legalism. Let me read Revelation 22, 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That is, if I feel the need to add to what God has given, God says the plagues that are written in the book will be added to me. But for the Corinthians, they're not adding extra biblical rules. They're not even following the rules that God gave us. So what do they need? More Jesus. What is mentioned ten times in nine verses? Jesus. Who are we to imitate? Jesus. Think with me for a moment. What does it mean to be like Jesus? I think of Luke chapter 2. Jesus is a young boy. He's at the temple with the rabbis, and he is confounding them. They've never seen anyone with this kind of knowledge, this understanding of the Word. In other words, even a young Jesus was in the Word of God. 
I think of Luke chapter 5 where it says that Jesus goes away to pray in a desolate place. If the Son of Man, if God's Son needs time to commune with God in prayer, how much more do I need? So if I want to be like Jesus, more Jesus, I need to be in the Word of Jesus, and I need to be praying to the Father of Jesus. And then I think of obedience. What does Philippians 2.8 say about Jesus? He said he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. To be more like Jesus is to be in the Word, in prayer, and to be obeying the Word. And I think of Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. What was one of the charges against Jesus? He was a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. To be like Jesus is never to give up our values, never to give up our mores, but it's to take Jesus into the world. It's to testify, proclaim Jesus. To be like Jesus is to be in the Word, in prayer, obedient to Jesus, to take Jesus into the world. And finally, to be like Jesus is to live the sanctified life. Let me read verses 5 and 6. That in every way you were enriched in him, Jesus, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Here we are called to speak like Jesus, to testify about Jesus by how we live. That's the life that he's calling the Corinthians to live. They may live in an immoral world. They may live in an idolatrous world. They may live in a materialistic world. In fact, they did. And we do. And what does Paul call us to? To be more like Jesus. Less like our world, more like Jesus. In fact, he says part of that more like Jesus life is to serve with the giftedness that Jesus entrusts to us. Let me read verse 7 again. So you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about what happens at the moment in which we pray and receive Christ. We are given one or more spiritual gifts. And the Bible says those spiritual gifts have two purposes. To bring glory to God which is the ultimate purpose of our life, and to build up his bride, which is the church. So at the moment in which we came to Christ, God gave us some spiritual gifts, and to be like Jesus is to utilize the gifts. Maybe he gave us the gift of teaching, or shepherding, or administration, or mercy, or evangelism, or helps, or servanthood, leadership, lots of gifts given, and he gives those gifts that we might become more like Jesus. In fact, in verse 7 he says, So that you, humos, plural, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ. I find this really interesting. Paul says to a very disobedient church, Corinth, You aren't lacking any of the gifts. In fact, when we get to chapters 12 to 14, Paul's all over talking about the gifts. He says, you're not lacking. But if you read the text, or if you lived in the church, you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, we're lacking. We have needs all over the place. We're, we're lacking. And I think Paul would say, no. No. 
you're not lacking. The problem isn't a lack of gifts. The problem is a lack of service. Utilizing the gifts. That's the problem in the church at Corinth. That's the problem in the church in the 21st century. It's not a lack of gifts. It's a lack of utilizing the gifts. So if we want to be more like Jesus, we're in the Word, we're in prayer, we're obedient to the Word, we're taking the Word out to others, we're working on that sanctification process, working out our salvation, not for our salvation, we're working out our salvation, and we're utilizing the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to us. So Paul says to them, he says to us, we need to get in the game and use the giftedness entrusted to us because that helps make us more like Jesus. In conclusion, I want to go back to verse 2. Let me read it again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified or those holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You notice the word holy and you notice the word saints in my text. They're actually really the same word. A lot of modern translations shy away from the word saint because we no longer know what a saint is. You ask the average person what a saint is, and they're likely to fumble a little bit, and then they might say, well, I think it's a dead person, like, you know, St. Paul or St. Jerome, or, and that's what we think a saint is. Because of that, modern translations, for the most part, this did not shy away, but most shy away from the word saint. Because we become accustomed to the idea of a, a dead person being a saint, more specifically, a person who's been dead for at least five years, who's known to have lived a godly life, and so then a group says, hey, that person lived a godly life, and there's some research done, and if they've lived a godly life, they'd be called a servant of Jesus, which is something we can be called today, a servant of Jesus. But if they get far enough to be called a servant of Jesus, then they look further into your life. The curia looks at you, and if you're you're godly enough, then they call you venerable. So if you don't want to call me St. Jeff, you can call me Venerable Jeff. I'm okay with that as well. And then if you really have done well, they start looking for a miracle in your life. And if there's a miracle that's attached to your life, they call you blessed beatification. And then if they can find a second miracle, they canonize you and they call you a saint. But that's nothing to do with the text. That's nothing to do with how the Bible uses the word saint. The Bible calls each of us who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he calls us a saint. Remember that perfect passive participle. When you came to Christ, something became true that still is true, and it will always be true, and that is you are covered with the shed blood of Christ, and you are declared righteous, and you are called a saint, and then you and I are to work out the salvation that God has entrusted to us. And some of us who are called saints have a long way to go, and, and some who are called saints here are really living for the Lord, 
and what a great model you are. The Bible calls all of us who know Jesus to live lives that somebody would say, I know they're a saint. What, a, what an embarrassment. If there's a Christ follower and someone would say, I'm not sure. <laughs> they don't look like much of a saint to me. But we are. If we know Jesus, if we truly know Jesus, we are saints. We've been declared that. And then God expects us to live that. Not as an act of legalism, but an act of relationship, an act of worship. Some of you know the name Oliver Cromwell. Uh, not the greatest of guys necessarily in the 16th and 17th century. He was the guy that helped make England a republic, the Commonwealth of England. If you know anything about Oliver Cromwell, very, very controversial figure, while he was ruling, it was a wealthy time in England's history, and they actually ran out of silver to make coins. And so Oliver Cromwell sent a number of his representatives out through the countryside to bring back silver so they could make more coinage. And when the people came back, they said, Mr. Cromwell, the only silver we could find were the statutes of saints in the cathedrals. And Cromwell made a very, well, well-known statement. He said, melt down the saints and put them back into circulation. Now, as somebody who loves history, I am horrified that he melted down things that are historically of value. But I love the concept. Get the saints back into circulation. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying. In nine verses, ten times he says, you need more Jesus. You need more Jesus. You need more Jesus. More Jesus ought to be spilling out of God's people. We are called saints. We have been declared as believers to be saints. And now we have to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. We need to work out the sainthood, living for the Lord. That's what he calls us to do. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we pray that we would indeed not work for our salvation. We cannot do that. But we would work out that salvation that you have entrusted to each who believe. That we would live in such a way that you would be honored and glorified. And Father, if there's someone here today that does not know your son Jesus... May today be a day when they, as we all must, acknowledge that we have a sin problem, a personal sin problem, and our sin will keep us from a holy God, you. And that's why you allowed, you willed, your Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, to also take on humanity, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then to take our sin upon himself, for the wages of sin is death, and to die on the cross. And to rise again as evidence of life after the grave. To conquer death. And to offer salvation to all who by faith would believe and receive Jesus. 
And so if there's some of us who do not know Christ, may today be the day that we believe and receive Jesus. And for we who know Christ, allow us to live out our salvation in such a way that we're not haughty, that we're not prideful, we're not legalistic or arrogant, but we're in the Word, in prayer, taking the Word to a world, living out holy lives for our betterment and your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.